The first week of October, when the full chill of autumn hangs heavy in the air, and the moon draws her thick blanket of darkness across the crisp ground just a little earlier than before, we ready our minds and spirits for unearthly tales of ghosts and phantoms. Some, I stand gleefully among the accused, readying ourselves from the moment Halloween decorations go on sale each November 1st. Still, there is something refreshing about that familiar rustle of dry leaves, sharp tinges of clove, and dancing shadows just out of the corner of our eye. As we creep closer to Halloween, the episodes I will be bringing you each week this month will feature a topic for the season, and thrilled beyond reason doesn't even begin to encapsulate just how excited I am for our first subject. Cauldrons, prophecies, spells, and the misrepresentation that ties them all together. Yes, my pretties, tonight we take our first dive into witches. Welcome, my friends and loves. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. Witches throughout time have a long, complex, and still flourishing history, if I do say so myself, <laughs> that ranges from media villains and heroines to sacred and deeply personal practices based in traditions from Western paganism, Eastern Shintoism, and far beyond. With books on histories, spells, various practices, as well as gatherings, podcasts, and so much more, we've thankfully come a long way since the witch hunts and burnings at the stake from days of old, even though we admittedly still have a long way to go when it comes to true inclusion of diverse perspectives. Our first story of the night, however, manages to combine both the very old and the very current in an intriguing and mysterious way. An article in the Daily Mail UK on September 22nd of 2020 shared that archaeologists unearthed an extravagant burial site dating back 1,500 years. In an undisclosed site in Saxony-Anhalt, near Brücken-Heckpfeffel, Germany, the exact location held secret with the intention of warding off potential thieves, what once was the soon-to-be location for a thriving chicken farm has now become the country's most important archaeological find in 40 years. Protected by its placement in a natural hollow that over time slowly succumbed to 4 feet, or 1.2 meters, of sediment, the massive grave and its treasures remained hidden from robbers and farm equipment. Once finally discovered, and unearthed by way of potential chicken farm, it was found that the site held nearly 60 graves 
and immaculate artifacts that sat beyond the central attraction of the burial tomb. A section containing the remains of 11 full animals, including cows, horses, and dogs, along with a large bronze cauldron surrounded by the bodies of six women lying on all sides like the even numbers of a clock. While it's thought the women may have been widows, concubines, or even devotees of the deceased lord or prince to whom the site's tomb belonged, it's not known how they died or when. Did they sacrifice themselves? Were they killed as part of a ritual? Was it willingly? Researchers say it's too soon at this point to tell, but what they have established is that the site was created sometime between 480 and 530 AD, otherwise known as just after the fall of the Roman Empire, when Germanic tribes saw their chance to invade and took it. This opens the door to a lot of possibilities and questions surrounding the events of the times. However, the other and perhaps biggest question of all remains. Despite the trappings of power, social standing, wealth, and even a possible harem of devotees, where is the main body? Archaeologist Suzanne Frederick from the Lance Museum Hall noted, maybe his ashes are in the bronze cauldron. <laughs> now, while these buried women weren't necessarily witches per se, there is something very evocative about women gathered around a cauldron even more so, I dare say, when you add in the possibility of a man's ashes in said cauldron. However, the other aspect of this tale that I found particularly resonated with me was how little was known about these women. They are shrouded in mystery. The very placement of their bodies sings of ritual. However, their story is being told, for better or worse, by others, and in that there lie so many opportunities for misunderstanding and misrepresentation. It brings to mind another group of women around a cauldron. However, this set is a bit more recent a bit more famous, and a bit more fictional, while still remaining commonly misunderstood. Yes, one does not reference such a famous line in their title without making space for the weird sisters of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Fair is foul and foul is fair, hover through the fog and filthy air. Perhaps the original Wicked Witches of pop culture media, at least in Shakespeare's day, the history of these three sisters is actually much more rich than seen strictly between the pages of the Bard script. While many refer to the women as witches, including Shakespeare himself in the words of the script, they are never called such by any character on stage. They are always referred to as the Weird Sisters, 
or, more correctly, the weird women or sisters, always spelled weird with an umlaut over the I. As a fun side fact, in the first folio, which is the earliest surviving copy of Macbeth, the word alternates spellings between wayward, wayward, spelled W-E-Y-W-A-R-D, and weird, W-E-Y-A-R-D. Another fun fact is that in 1606, each of these spellings would have been pronounced the same way. Weird. It's so So, why such a focus on this particular word for the pivotally paranormal trio? Many have commonly linked the sisters to the three fates of Greek mythology. And, indeed, it seems Shakespeare's historical source for the characters of Macbeth and Banquo make mention of a timely encounter with weird sisters who were, quote, goddesses of destiny, or else some nymphs or fairies endowed with the prophecy of knowledge. Which tracks perfectly to me. After all, regardless of which culture wrote down my tales, if I were a fate and I knew what Macbeth was going to get into, it would be really hard not to get in for a closer look. And looking closer at the word weird itself, it seems that it was linked to wired, a word I realize when spoken sounds very similar, but it is actually spelled W-Y-R-D. This word in England and Scotland during the 11th century essentially represented a force that was mysterious, unavoidable, and inexplicable. As words so often do, in time, the spelling and meaning changed so that by the Renaissance, it was spelled in the more traditional manner of weird, no umlaut, and lost a lot of the depth of meaning the original held, although it still generally was understood to represent destiny. Where this becomes particularly interesting for our Shakespearean sisters is that during the days when Macbeth would have first played at the Globe, the audience would likely have heard in their name pronunciation, wayward, as more than subtly suggested by the earlier mention of alternate spellings in the first folio. And while we could perhaps look at that today and think, yeah, wayward, uh, I mean, they do tell the future, that's kind of unusual, and I mean, you know, apparently live in the forest and haunt people? Do they eat babies? Do they eat babies? I think they eat babies. Oh shit! Back in those days, it was unequivocally an insult, particularly to women who seemed a little too outspoken, a little too bold, a little too independent or combative, and so forth. Perhaps even like women who asserted themselves, bold, in knowledge that even men couldn't understand, and so thus relegated to the role of wayward, weird, or witch. 
and truly, we find that in both days long before and those long since the inception of the Weird Sisters, the trend of associating new or inexplicable knowledge with witchcraft or magic almost seems to be a go-to. However, as time has gone by, and science has given us more clarity and insight into the way the world, and we, work, some really interesting finds have been made that shed new light on brews of old. Now, before sharing some of these finds, it's important to point out that for an unfortunately great many years, women were not allowed to participate in formal medical training. Midwives and healers would often work with shared and passed down knowledge of natural remedies in villages and out of their homes. If a cure miraculously worked, it could be witchcraft. If it failed, it could be witchcraft. Now complete with angry neighbors. Between 1400 and 1800 in America, Scandinavia, and Europe, it's estimated that between 90 to 100,000 witch trials were carried out. And yet, healers still healed. Some trying with vague success, and midwives still helped mothers through labor. And now, it seems that not all of what these women and some men concocted in their cauldrons should be completely dismissed. Heart disease is a very real and very serious issue. In the 1780s, Dr. William Withering was the first to scientifically test and use the plant digitalis as a treatment for heart issues. His concoctions utilized the whole plant rather than the isolated compounds we're able to extract today, which allows for controlled doses of active ingredients and the removal of any harmful compounds of the plant. So, for Dr. Withering, his patients experienced widely varied results, but it was a tremendous step in effective drug trials and monitoring participants and results. As far as stumbling across Digitalis's medicinal properties, Dr. Withering credited a, quote, wise woman of Shropshire, who may just have called the plant by its other common name, Foxglove. Another of the most noted plants of the witch's potion cabinet is Belladonna, or Deadly Nightshade. While having been used at times throughout history medicinally, this plant is listed as poisonous. And indeed, its deep black berries have been called sorcerer's berries, devil's berries, and murderer's berries. In fact, if a human or many animals were to nibble even a small amount of its skin-irritating leaves, or, as I like to call them, kill berries, they wouldn't have to find the plant fatal. They'd be dead. All that being said, it's hard to imagine this aggressive botanical showing a softer side, but 
Even the deadly nightshade has been found to have a helpful component or two, namely atropine and scopolamine. Both of these compounds have almost the same uses, though for various practices, one will often be deployed over the other. The research I did revealed a veritable treasure trove of uses for the two compounds, so I'm just going to share them. Firstly, atropine is used in relaxing muscle spasms and regulating heart rate. When visiting your eye doctor, if you have your eyes dilated by drops, belladonna has made an appearance. Additionally, it has been used as an antidote for insecticides and even chemical warfare agents. For scopolamine, it has been used to help reduce body secretions, such as stomach acid, and can help reduce motion sickness through the use of a skin patch. And when either joins forces with other medications, the possibilities include treating irritable bowel syndrome, spastic colon, stomach ulcers, Parkinson's disease, diverticulitis, motion sickness, excessive nighttime urination, and pink eye. In a way, these plants are a little like the witches themselves, commonly misunderstood or mistreated, which may result in skin irritation or other unpleasantries. But once given proper understanding and care, they really shine in a multitude of ways. Perhaps that's you, and perhaps that's me. And perhaps, as we look back over today's strange adventure, I think about how we moved from women's appearance of witchiness without any real knowledge behind them or their intentions, to this waywardness and how a woman's knowledge makes her witchy and dangerous. And finally, to communal knowledge, being respected and shared. And now, thus are we all witches. And with that, I ask you, what will you be putting in your cauldron? Thank you so much for joining me through the Fantastically Strange. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey. I am incredibly excited to share that the official Fantastically Strange website is now live, and you can check it out at fantasticallystrange.com. I'll be honest with you, there's swag. Also, if you've enjoyed the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself. The website is why I haven't slept in the past few days. <laughs> Seriously, though, I am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics I'm passionate about. And just your ear means the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. And we are also now officially live on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Now, if you would like to show your support as well and get early access to episodes, bonus content, and other goodies related to my other work, I wouldn't say no to you visiting patreon.com slash rocketfox. All sources, music, 
and sound effects are linked and credited in the show info. The illustration behind the logo is by Constance Hermit, and the theme song of Hey Dorothy is by Cruise Machine. Check them out on social media. You won't regret it. Thanks again, and I can't wait to see you next time. So-